Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 45. Glad you could join us. Today, the cast interviews experts in dealing with mental health issues, specifically when it comes to homeschooling. We hope you'll learn as much from this important episode as we did. And as always, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at colby.org. Enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And I'm Hope, Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student, but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt to Bonnie's kids. We've heard during this crazy year of pandemic and a lot of emergency homeschooling and just a lot of um, a lot of differences in the way that we go about our lives, we've heard from the Colby advisors that conversations about mental health have been more frequent this year, especially about matters relating to students and parents' mental health and pandemic-related isolation. And I think this is a conversation that is so crucial to have, especially in our Catholic homeschooling community. And I think that the conversation about mental health, especially compared to its uh, complement, spiritual health, is something that I'm really excited to explore. And Bonnie and I are thrilled today to welcome clinical psychologist Dr. Peter Malinowski and registered clinical counselor Jody Garneau, who are both mental health professionals and homeschooling parents themselves, to the podcast to have a conversation. So welcome, both of you. Hi. It is great to be here. Thank you for having us, Hope, Bonnie. We are so excited you're here. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, both as mental health professionals and as homeschooling parents? Sure, I guess I'll go. Um, It's Jody. I have four daughters and they were homeschooled from K to 12. So their first day at school, I always say, was when they went to college. (laughs) And um, that was that was fun and challenging. And when the youngest was in grade 10, I thought I need another career. So I applied to Divine Mercy University and got a degree, a master's in clinical counseling and started in the world of counseling. I was uh, not just homeschooling my own children, but I was also teaching and consulting with homeschoolers uh, before that. So, Let's see. I, so I, I'm the proud father of seven and we also homeschooled them from, you know, from early on right up through, um, you know, through the whole way. My oldest is now 23. My youngest is eight. I remember the first day I ever heard anything about homeschooling because I'm old enough to like be back and sort of like before it was cool, you know, before it was well known. And and uh, I remember hearing about it and I was like, we're going to do that. I want to do that. And so I was like super excited about it from the get go. And and it's worked out really beautifully for us. Uh, as professionally, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I've had an entirely secular uh, psychology education. Uh, most of the Catholic psychology graduate programs didn't exist when I went through graduate school. So, um, and I am super excited that this conversation about mental health is growing because um, this we have. I, I lead this with Jerry Creed. I lead this online outreach, Souls and Hearts, and we really try to bring the best of Catholic psychology grounded in the Catholic anthropology to to Catholics kind of through our through that through that outreach. So I am uh, I'm really happy to see more and more people talking about not just spiritual formation, but also human formation. And right? it's not just about health. It's also about formation. And one of the things about homeschoolers is that they really have an investment in the formation of of the children. So I think that's absolutely beautiful. Well, it's such a pleasure to visit with both of you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I find it very intriguing how you, Jody, how you have, how it has unfolded for you and your family, homeschooling your daughters and helping homeschooling families and now entering the mental health profession. And also you, Dr. Peter, with your own personal experience and your professional experience. I'm confident that will be intriguing to our listeners, both for your perspective and for those who would be interested in pursuing that path themselves down the road if there are students or parents thinking, oh, that could be something. I didn't realize those programs were out there. That I can see myself serving that way. 
in those different respects. So I think there's all kinds of interest here for all sorts of people. I'm so glad and grateful we are broaching this topic today and having this conversation with you as as have been coming up. We had a few earlier in the season on the podcast with various guests and now to, to focus on it today. So, well, not just one, but a related cadre of topics that we have for our plan today. So thank you again for that. I, I'm curious to hear how you approach broaching the topic of mental health with people who either it's just not part of their, it's not on the radar screen, so to speak, or there's a resistance there for one reason or another, how you kind of work around that to where it brings it up to a level where there's a, a willingness to have a conversation about it. You know, I think I think a lot of people are willing to discuss stress. You know, that seems pretty benign, right? You're right. A lot of people are psychologically not, they're not very psychologically minded. They don't think in terms of internal experience. Stress is though something that um, is pretty ubiquitous. It's out there. People tend to experience it. They tend to acknowledge that. Um, you know, I, I tend to think about like, what's the motivation that this person would have? What, what kinds of good motivations might we be able to connect with? Right. Uh, and some people, frankly, they are not going to go inside. Sometimes that's because their own human formation hasn't included that. And sometimes it's because there's something really threatening going on there, you know, uh, and so it's not safe uh, enough to do that. And so then I think about, OK, how do we how do we try to increase a sense of safety? So you want to think a little bit about like why? Is it difficult, right? That whole kind of operating in the mode of the receiver. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, it, it also makes me think that I, I think there is a tendency now to look at things more holistically. Like we realize that when, you know, for example, with homeschooling, if there's a learning problem, sometimes it can be, you know, nutritionally related or um, just something going on inside that has nothing to do with the actual, you know, learning impediment. So I think. I hear a lot more from moms that that's the way they approach things in their family or another friend might come alongside and say, hey, hey have you considered this? So um, while they might be afraid of, um, and maybe rightly so, some of the psychological <laughs> trends in the past that have kind of seemed very secular or very, um, you know, kind of self-serving in a a way that we wouldn't appreciate as Catholics. I think there's also a way to acknowledge that, you know, we are human beings with emotions and um, reactions, and we need to take that into account. So I think if you come at it a different way, maybe it's sometimes the jargon that they're against or the history. So just, I think if you come at it in a natural way, and I think we as Catholics are perfectly positioned to recognize this you know, the union between body and soul and that we're corporeal beings, like our sacraments involve the body and the the sacraments move us in many ways, you know, not just intellectually, but spiritually and emotionally. So it's maybe just to appeal to the person, right, to their experience and make it less threatening, I guess. Well, and a lot of times that's just a part of them that is cautious or is um, questioning, right? And so... I've noticed I've had a number of clients through the years that came to me specifically because I was a Catholic home Catholic homeschooling father, right? So there's a sort of sense of safety that, and you know, there is there is every practice of psychology, every practice of counseling, is based on some at least implicit philosophy, some implicit theology, some implicit metaphysics, some implicit epistemology. There's all these disciplines that inform the practice of psychology, and so you know because we you know, we have this knowledge by faith that we have the truth and the, you know, and the teachings of the church that makes it so much more comfortable for some folks uh, to be able to do that. So, What I'm hearing you describing is really an invitation to people when there might be some resistance or some caution to really kind of invite them into an idea of, of safety or things like that. And that's really appealing to me. I think that, I mean, like the joke runs, right, is that the Catholic response to something bad is like, just offer it up. <laughs> and it can be very dismissive. You, oh, go to adoration and it'll all work out and, or things like that. And so these tropes of offering it up or praying it away, I mean, that 
the true um, true practice of offering something up can be really beautiful and very um, very much a type of redemptive suffering. But I think the way that it's used in common parlance can really be kind of dangerous um, and alienating, kind of dismissive almost. So I guess in those, with that background, when you're getting to know someone's um, caution or, or trying to engage them, how do I want to phrase this? Kind of along those lines, could you describe some of the connections and the differences between uh, spiritual and mental formation? And like you're talking about body and, and soul. And I know that is a huge question that could take the entire episode. <laughs> I think you're very right. It can be feel very dismissive to say, just offer it up. Because I think everyone, especially our teenagers and our young adults, they want to be heard, you know, and this is what I've heard from my own daughters at college. They'll tell me that other fellow students are in a Catholic school uh, feel distressed because their parents will say that to them and, and they feel like they're not connecting, right? So I don't know how we got stuck in that message because there's value in that. I totally agree. I, I've offered up many things, <laughs> but it's not one or the other, right? It's both and. Mm -hmm. And so how can we really hear the person and, and be with them and, and kind of meet them there? I think that's the parents, that's our challenge, right? You know, St. Thomas Aquinas said that grace perfects nature. It does not destroy it. And so I really think about um, this human formation as the foundation for the spiritual the spiritual formation, right? So um, really think about, for example, John the Baptist, what did he do? He prepared the way for the Lord, right? And so I really believe that when we, when we, when we bring that order in, in the natural realm within us, that means in terms of our interior integration, you know, our emotions, our, our feelings, our memories, our body sensations, our thoughts, our attitudes, our impulses. When we're familiar with who we are as a person on the natural realm, we've got a much more solid foundation for building the spiritual life because anything that's really disordered anything that's dysfunctional in that human aspect is going to have an impact on our spiritual lives. If we have difficulty relating, for example, to authority figures because of experiences we've had, traumas and so forth, it's going to make, it's going to have an impact on how we relate with God, right? Uh, especially God as King, right? Um, and so if we have, a, if we have issues with men, right, because of traumas or whatever, that's going to make it hard to connect with the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ as true man, not just true God. So what I really think about as a Catholic psychologist is what kinds of things, if we resolve those issues in the natural realm, would help us to be able to uh, be united with God in beatific vision, be united with Our Lady. Uh, and so, so that's what I think um, that's what I think psychology can be so helpful because you're right. There is a lot of um, what we call spiritual bypassing. And that's when we, the definition of spiritual bypassing by John Wellwood, who coined the term back in the, I think 1980 was in the early eighties. And it's an interesting because he, he was a Buddhist mental health professional that found that a lot of the Buddhist practices were being misused to sort of paper over natural level problems, right? So spiritual bypassing, the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. And so what you see is like in, in Catholicism, right? You can see, well, that's just my cross, right? When, you know, you start to unpack this and it's it's really a natural level phenomenon. It's a kind of a cross of my own making, right? Um, which actually makes it less, makes me less able to bear the crosses that Christ really wants me to bear, for example. Um, and you had talked about, yeah, just offer it up, but that can be very dismissive. That can be another way of saying, I, I, I can't hear your issues. I can't, I can't engage with that. I don't want to talk about that with you. Um, and, you know, but it's packaged in a way where it sounds, you know, Catholic and it sounds 
pious or something like that. So, and I think that kind of stuff actually, you know, is really common in a lot of circles, especially when uh, an alternative uh, vocabulary really hasn't been developed yet. So, I was just thinking along those lines that a lot of people, I think, envision the saints as being kind of without emotion. <laughs> you know, like if I was really holy, I would just be like this calm, you know, still water that's just kind of, and and that's not who they are, right? I love reading the lives of the saints and seeing their passion or their sufferings. And, you know, they didn't go through it untouched. That That would make it not actually sanctifying, right? So how do we relate to those stories? And I think they can, can sometimes be a, an inspiration for us to see the saints as persons that have this whole range of, you know, living in the world and reacting to the world as we have to do too. That's beautiful. And like you were talking about before we had started, Dr. Peter, like there's that issue of breadth versus depth. So I, I hate moving us along to the next bullet point, but I think that they correspond. Uh, Jody, in our conversations before recording, I thought you raised this wonderful point that primary educator, whether it's usually mom or dad or just the parents in general as primary educators of the children, the parents' mental health matters. And the parents' experience with emotions and stress responses matter. And so could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Because you're you take on so much more when you homeschool, right? And it's a very unique path. As much as we have a whole bunch more people in the boat this year with the pandemic, <laughs> it's still very unique, right? Yeah. And um, and it's it can be a struggle, right? And sometimes we get really hard on ourselves when we find it hard and when we're feeling maybe we don't want to get out of bed or we don't we feel very scattered about who's behind and what have I not done and you're frustrated, you've spent the day you felt like herding cats all day. I, I know that feeling. And um, yeah, if mom, you know, you have to acknowledge this can be hard. And and I found that hard as a homeschooler. And I know with my homeschool friends, who do you say that to? Right? You're not going to say that to your mom if she's wondering what the heck you're doing homeschooling or your mother-in-law who's wondering how you compare to the <laughs> school down the road, right? You're not going to say it's hard. So you have to have a circle of friends that are trustworthy that you can say, I'm having a hard day. I'm ready to send, you know, Timmy to the army and he's maybe only nine, but um, <laughs> I'm tired of asking for, for the spelling or the math or whatever. So um, we have to allow ourselves to be human. Like we're going to have days where we're tired too. You know, maybe you were up with the baby. Maybe you were um, up with a sick child or just maybe you had things that you had to take care of. So just you're, you are not running a school you're, you know, you're managing a home and you're educating. And so how do you make allowances for that? And then if mom has a problem with emotion, then it, when she has emotional children, children having, exhibiting emotions, that's going to be hard, right? So how does she prepare herself to be with a child who's, you know, having that meltdown or feeling the anxiety? The The more we can be the calm for the child, everything goes better. So if that means, you know, y'all need to take a time out, then y'all y'all just be together and say, let's put the books down for a minute. At the end of the day, that's more important lesson than, than the spelling test, right? You have to keep your eye on the whole picture. So I think it's actually, I think homeschooling's better for mental health. You think of your little kids, you don't, they aren't away from you for eight hours. Right. And then you're trying to guess what happened all day you know what happened all day, right? So you're you're in the rhythm together, which can be irritating. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I used to be thankful for it. Yeah, if my, and if mom is struggling with burnout or anxiety or depression, you know, get the help. Uh, you know, whether that means turning to your spouse and saying, help, I need you to back me up. I'm not getting any work out of him this year or this week. I need you to check on the kids, you know, help me with that. There's certain ways that the parents can come together to support each other. So it's not just the mother feeling like, well, you know, it's not always the mother, but often the one just kind of slugging through the whole, you know, pushing everything because everything is on you, right? Every shoe, every hair, you know, brushing the hair, making the beds. Now it's the algebra and the Latin test and the spelling test. So that's a lot. 
and you just need to acknowledge it sometimes like yeah I'm having a hard day maybe I need a break on you know this week and that's not being soft on yourself that's being realistic right I think that can be so when we are able to do that that can be so instructive to our children as well almost narrating out loud I'm feeling this way I need to, to do this for a moment I need a moment and maybe talking through things as best we're able to or even just demonstrating that we're going to give this another go we're going to take a minute we're going to read a book together or have a snack or something, whatever, some kind of break in action or whatever. Hopefully that will be helpful to them down the road when they find themselves in whatever situation. Hopefully it'll plant a seed somewhere that will sprout when they need it to. I love that because, yeah, modeling it and allowing for resets, like even verbalizing that. Okay, I think we need a reset here. Let's go back. And I remember having to check my internal emotional, you know, temperature, what was going on. And at one point I recognized I was being set off by um, the talk radio I was listening to. And I thought, okay, I need to cut that out. It's not actually my child that's triggering me. I'm already very escalated. And then they ask one more thing, right? So I have to own that. Like, okay, I'm going to monitor. Am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting to eat breakfast? You know, um, am I being able to spend time in prayer and, and just try to get the rhythm? You're not running a school. If you put that pressure on yourself, that becomes unrealistic because a school has staff and a school has all kinds of resources, right? And they don't take the kids home at night. So <laughs> it's just a different thing, right? Yeah. And children are intensely curious usually about what's going on inside their parents. Um, that's really, I mean, if there's, there's a, a bond there, there's a lot that they can learn by, um, you sharing what your internal experience is with them in appropriate ways, of course, but yeah, it helps them to make sense of their own experience, you know, um, because children have a tendency to personalize things, you know, um, and to think that they actually are responsible for things that happen because of, you know, some kind of issue that's going on just within the parents. So. That's a real gift to give to children. Again, you know, in a thoughtful way. That doesn't mean that every emotion or everything that's going on inside the mom or the dad needs to be shared, but that is a gift to kids. What you're describing about the um, the children picking up on the parents' state and the people around. I mean, Dr. Peter, you mentioned that your oldest is 23. I'm 28. So I was homeschooling and that before it was cool time as well. And I remember having a lot of anxiety myself and picking up on, I think our mom's anxiety of, am I keeping up? Am I keeping up? Because we didn't have many benchmarks to compare ourselves to. And, um, while there are more, um, resources now for homeschoolers, there's still, I think almost over motivation sometimes with homeschooled students to try to prove themselves or to try to be diligent and detailed. And we heard we had a, um, a couple of college professors on the podcast recently who were describing about how the, the homeschooled students they get are great. They come up, they introduce themselves to the professor, but they're also they also have the tendency to show up in office hours almost too much or to come in after an 89 and say, what can I do to get better? And so you were talking about the um, kind of distortions on the natural level and how they affect the supernatural level. So I'd love to hear your insights on like how to encourage healthy internal motivation from students and, and healthy diligence without, um, without encouraging them into a lot of this perfectionism on the natural realm or scrupulosity on the supernatural realm? Well, most of the things that we think of as psychological disorders are really just symptoms, okay? They're really symptoms. When you talk about depression or anxiety or panic attacks or manic episodes or even uh, psychosis, those are all just symptoms. That's the end of the causal chain. When you actually trace those things back you and you get to the roots of what's going on, you actually see that those are all driven by unmet needs. And so there's a finite number of unmet needs. There's attachment needs and there's what I call integrity needs. 
So I'm going to be thinking about, okay, let's, let's instead of like snipping the, the leaves off a weed, instead of just treating the symptoms, let's see if we can take it back up the causal chain to the primary causes. And so if we look on the natural level about what attachment needs are, there's five major attachment needs. First one, feeling seen, known, heard, and understood. That's the first one. Second one, feeling safe and secure. The third one, feeling comforted, soothed, and reassured if one is upset. The fourth is feeling cherished, rejoiced, and delighted in. The fifth one is feeling that someone has my best interests at heart. Somebody's looking out for me. Somebody's got my back. Those are the five major attachment needs. And then the integrity needs, uh, I exist and I exist in my own right as a separate person. My identity is stable over time. I can regulate myself. I can make sense of my experience inside and of the world around me. I'm integrated interiorly. I have dignity and autonomy, and I have a sense of mission and purpose and meaning in life. So when you actually take any symptom and you like begin to trace it back, you'll find that it's going to hit one of those needs or more. So, um, so anxiety, that's a physiological thing. It's a physiological response in addition to being a, um, an emotion, right? But what is it saying? It's saying something's not right. I'm in danger. I have a need that's not being met. And so one of the things that I do encourage parents to do is, okay, let's go back to these attachment needs. Let's go back to these integrity needs. What might be going on inside of a child? Or what might be going on inside of me that's setting off the symptoms? Because the symptoms are there as gifts to tell us that something's wrong. And they always get us, right? Because, you know, if it's a symptom that doesn't work, right, it's just, then it's not meeting its function. So there's, there's going to be a symptom that comes up that grabs our attention. Uh, it's always going to be uncomfortable enough to try to motivate us towards some kind of more effective action. But in our culture, we often mistake the symptom uh, and we believe that's the cause. And that would be like going into an emergency room. If, if I was your ER physician and you came in and you had intense abdominal pain and a high fever, and I gave you painkillers and Tylenol, you know, and just treated the symptoms, I haven't done you any favors because when your appendix ruptures, you're gonna be in a lot worse situation than you were before. So. So this is where that human formation is really helpful because it's also in these things in the natural realm that we get our first experience and we begin to generalize as to who God is, you know. Um, and so you, you can see those different levels, right? Scrupulosity, there's a lot of not feeling safe, not feeling secure in God's love, not being enough, feeling inadequate in a spiritual way, and a, a lot of anger about that that is not able to be even acknowledged within us. So when there's scrupulosity, I tend to look for where's the anger and aggression and how would that ever be uh, addressed, uh, if, for example, in the relationship with God. It's a really common, it's a really common factor there. It's not always what drives scrupulosity because again, scrupulosity is a, a symptom, right? It's a nonspecific symptom in a lot of ways. You can't always, just like a fever is a nonspecific symptom, right? It can be generated by a lot of different causes. That's why attempts to treat symptoms without getting at causes can be kind of unreliable. If you could share your wisdom on allowing kids to fail. For me, I see it as if they can't learn to fail and manage disappointment in the loving environment of my home, how will they face that first failure out of the home? So I think as homeschoolers, we do try to protect them from that, right? We, we want to keep rewriting that paper till we get it just right. And um there are times where they will fail and then they i mean the lesson is that you're more than the letter grade right or you're more than what you did in this but if we always smooth the path and make it you know we do all the work around it and uh, it it keeps them from having that feeling and experience i think peter might have a different point of view even from a father's point of view and on the failure part 
Yeah, I think a lot of times when we don't want our kids to fail, it's because we don't want to be failures. We don't want to be looked at as failures, right? So that goes back yeah. to some of the burdens that can be put on kids inadvertently and with, you know, good intentions. It's it's understandable. But a lot of times failure is looked at only on the side of commissions, right? Uh, only on the side, I tried something and it didn't work. And so in order not to fail, I'm not going to try it, this other thing, right? And so one of the huge costs of this is that there's becomes this huge issue of omissions. What don't I do? What risks don't I take? You know, some of the most successful people in a worldly sense are the ones that have failed the most, right? 10,000 attempts at the light bulb, right, for Thomas Edison, right? Um, and I think the same thing happens in the spiritual life. You know, I think we need to be able to try things, right? Otherwise, we're going to be really constricted and, you know, not reach out, not take those risks that it takes to love God and to love our neighbor. And so one of the things about childhood that can be particularly encouraged in a home environment in a way that's not as possible in an institutional school is that freedom to like, let it, let, let's try it. Let's see what happens. And to see that failure is not something that tells us we're not worthy, that we're inadequate, that we ought to be ashamed of ourselves or, or whatever those things are that keep us in that uh, really constricted, inhibited space. So, I am uh, liable to get pretty down on myself thinking, oh, I should have seen that. I should have done this about that. I should have taken care of that. I'm, I'm not doing enough to take care of this, that kind of thing. So it shows up with me and them. So you referencing what's going on with the parent is helpful too. I think it's, we are confronted with our own, where we are as people more, uh, maybe not, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking personally, that it comes up, my own things I need to address come up in much sharper relief these days. <laughs> and that's by God's design, right? Our children are going to pull for the very things that we need to work on. They're going to know like what levers and buttons to push, you know, they're going to be able to get under our skin in ways that nobody else can. And uh, that's a gift to us because it allows us to know where our growing edges are, the things that we really need to be working on uh, within the natural realm, within the spiritual realm. And so it's hard though. It is, it is, you know, one of the things Jody, you, you addressed was just appreciating like how much you take on when you homeschool. It's a whole different, it's a whole different way of life, actually. There's a reason why, you know, kind of schools were, you know, originally popular, right? When they first like developed, it was like, yeah, wow, you know, this is amazing. Um, and even before, if you look at the history of home-based education, it wasn't what a lot of people are doing now. There's been a huge amount of development. There wasn't the attempts to do as much as a lot of families are trying to do with regard to um, meeting all these requirements for college entrance examinations and all the kind of pressure that can come with that. So, On the other hand, now there's so many more opportunities for families, right, to make mm -hmm. um, to make use of like classes and uh, tutors or just other ways. So I love to think of it as the mom is like the general contractor or the overseer. She does not have to do every piece, right? That's that's a yeah. burden we take on, like, and we feel like a failure if we can't, you know, do the algebra or keep up with the really bright child that's challenging us. And yeah, when the, knowing when to bring in help and when to bring in even a mentor, like even if it's a subject you can do, like I, I could do Latin, but my child couldn't do Latin with me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. those are two yeah. different things. Um, and recognizing, okay, she needed something different, right? Uh, now that struggling Latin child is a Latin teacher, but it took some patience and some encouragement and somebody else other than me mm -hmm. to do it. So, yeah. Especially in the high school, especially in the high school years. I mean, you yeah. want to distribute this. It does take more than than just the mom and the dad. It it takes a village, you know. It really does. And the kids really need to experience, you know, um, meeting others' expectations as far as their academic work and so forth. And you have a limited number of what I call idiosyncrasy chips. You have a limited number of things that you can um, that you can that you can sort of enforce 
right, uh, in a home environment. And if you're going to burn them up over this algebra problem, you're not going to have the same ones, you know, for the uh, the house cleaning or for the development of a particular virtue or for, you know, other things that are really important in the formation of that child. So, so yeah, you have to, you have to be thoughtful. I mean, that whole idea of St. Paul, right, oh, you know, you know, fathers don't nag your children. You have to be careful about like how much of that you take on just on your on your own. So true, and oh, that yeah. the idea of the, of the uh, currency, so to speak, the chips that you're mm-hmm. the if you think of mm-hmm. chips, it's like a type of currency. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. limited. Yeah, it's limited. Yeah, Bonnie and I had a conversation not too long ago about how. The, the phrase parents as primary educators necessarily implies <laughs> other educators as well, because if you were the only educator, you wouldn't need the word primary in there. And so that, I think, goes back to Jody's point about you're kind of like the general contractor. I, I hadn't heard that analogy, and I like it. Yeah, I like that one for that one, too. So along those lines of when to look out side of the home for support or assessment or things like that, especially psychologically, I guess, kind of a two-part question, how to get this process going. And also, there are so many types of mental health care available that it can be hard to know when to look, when to go to a counselor versus a social worker versus a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, and here I go again with the really big questions. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but, but I guess, yeah, how to get the process going and where to where to look. Um, I have a really short answer to that. Um, at Souls okay. and Hearts, at soulsandhearts.com, we have two free courses. They're video courses. One is a Catholic's guide to choosing a therapist. And we go through in that course all kinds of things. That's at soulsandhearts.com. And the other one is a Catholic's guide to self-help. And that one's actually really good if you're trying to figure out, like, where do I need to go? Kind of gives you some base guidelines about, like, how to do a self-assessment or how to work with. There's also another course called The Catholic's Guide to Helping a Loved One in Distress, which can also be really helpful if you're looking towards uh, somebody else in the family. So those were the first three courses that we built uh, because we knew there would be questions like this. So those are those are available there. But I would say, you know, to take some time to just inventory what's going on inside. I mean, the first thing that I tend to recommend that people do is set some time aside just to be able to check out what's happening inside. Sometimes journaling is helpful to put experiences into words, because if we can't put them into words, we can't think about them very clearly. And we need actually that language a lot of times to be able to um work conceptually to engage the sort of left brain with the cognitive left brain with all the stuff that's going on in the right brain in terms of the intensity of emotions and so forth so and it also allows us to share it with other people once we can symbolize it in language so to 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 actually be able to talk about it with somebody to be able to write about it so that we can at least come into a way of symbolizing it is a huge, is often a huge relief just to realize that, oh, I am feeling this, you know, and because we might not have known that before. We had the intensity of the experience, but we didn't have the the way of understanding it. So, Yeah, and, and what you're well, saying, Peter, that would also slow down the process. I spend a lot of time with my clients, just let's slow down, you know, whether it's in couples counseling or or parent child or individual, let's just slow down what's happening because it happens so fast. It's so habitual. It's a cascade of, you know, I went from this to that, you know, I went Mm -hmm. from she spilled the milk till I'm like yelling like a crazy person (laughs) and the neighbors are probably going to call somebody and I won't get a choice (laughs) of which person I talk to. Um, You know, it happens so fast. So just slowing it down and being aware of like, okay, yeah, I'm really, you know, feeling this and this is and when I feel this, then I start to feel anxious and then, you know, I'm worried about the schedule or whatever is happening for me as the mom, but also it's a good modeling for the kids. Do you find that to be something that we can sort of build up to in the moments, like we can recognize when things are happening, if we notice a pattern, if we discover that we're about to hit this iceberg, you know, once we kind of deal with the immediacy of that or whatever, sort of the take, some of the takeaways from that can be, let's work on the conversational skills, the journaling, the language skills around that when things are relatively stable so that people start to have that ingrained or even 
we can widen the lens a little bit, however we want to look at it, that we have a little bit more advanced warning, as much warning as we can have that we can kind of see it coming a little further out, that we can start engaging some of these skills we're trying to build so that it doesn't reach the point where, where I mean, it will still happen, I bet, but with less frequency, hopefully. So. Yeah, and there's times to address it and times not to. So when everyone is very escalated, a lot of the language centers are even offline. So it's it's not it's not helpful. And I probably am more guilty of that than other mothers of like deciding now's the best time for a rant about what just happened. Um, <laughs> my, my Newfoundland background, I think. But, you know, just recognizing there's a time to have that discussion, maybe not in the heat of the moment. And like, the child's not going to absorb it. I'm probably not going to be my best self. Like, um, there does feel sometimes as a parent, like, I've got to use this teaching moment right now. And you're not, it's not a teaching moment. If you're not in a teachable space, and they're not in a space to receive it right just come back later when right. it's not so intense I have to battle against that tendency to think i've got to do something about this right now and then it right. kind of ends right. up being too much yeah overcorrecting a bit yeah in line with what you're describing about the times to work on it and the times to just live through the moment um when it is pretty intense jody you had sent us four practical tips and uh, we'll put these in the show notes along with links to Souls and Hearts, uh, Dr. Peter's courses that he mentioned, and also um, if our listeners are interested in more on scrupulosity, Dr. Peter was a guest on the Catholic Therapist podcast on an episode devoted to scrupulosity. So all of these will be in the show notes for resources. But um, yeah, these four practical tips that you sent, Jody. One, help forming feelings into words. Two, parts awareness. Three, scheduling quiet time. And four, grounding methods that are simply enough for kids. These sound awesome. I would love to know more. <laughs> I'm intrigued. <laughs> so could you uh, describe them a little bit more for us? So it is valuable to help our children have the language, as Peter was saying, to, to name what they're feeling, right? And um, I, I like to make my children own their own feelings and not say, you know, she made me so mad. It's like, no, there's a part of me that's feeling really angry right now, or part of me is really hurt. And as they get older, you can even, there's all kinds of um, feeling charts you can print off if you want to see the variety of feelings. Great homeschool lesson on, you know, there's different types of anger, right? <laughs> I'm enraged, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated. Um, and we know from what we know about psychology, just naming these things helps us to recognize, okay, that's what's going on inside and be aware. So it's kind of a first step. Um, parts awareness, Peter's talked a bit about that too. Like um, we have different parts, right? A part of me, and it's so healthy to help children see this, like a part of me really loves my sister, but a part of me wants to, you know, take that toy back because she's making me really mad. And being able to talk in parts in, internally helps them kind of um, externalize and recognize it's not it's not necessarily I am 100% angry, but a part of me is angry and a part of me still loves. And that's a great way, even as parents, you know, to identify our parts. Uh, the scheduling quiet time, I think, is so important. We think we know we need quiet time when they're little and they take naps, but we give it up too easily. Quiet time, even if it's just quiet, creative time for a child, just mother needs that, right? Whether it's after lunch or early afternoon, just even 20 minutes, half an hour of the house is going to be quiet. And I don't mean electronics. <laughs> so some quiet time because that we know that helps with, you know, just emotional regulation and brain development. So and then grounding. So grounding can be things as simple as just focusing on what you're doing in the moment. So a lot of our childlike activities are grounding things like if everyone's feeling really antsy, you know, playing something like I spy, just noticing something blue in the room. We do this as therapists, you know, we ask people to, you know, what five things you see and four things you, yeah, going down the list, you do the different senses, which is another thing you can do with kids, right? Playing with that. But even things like blowing bubbles or playing with Play-Doh, a lot of the things we skip over because we think, well, that's not important. I got to get through the spelling test, but music, art, um, just sensory things these are very grounding for children noticing your body right now are you sitting on the chair do you feel yourself sitting in the chair 
that brings them back to the moment and then they can regulate at that time. I would say another one that we didn't add there was actually play. And I think sometimes as homeschoolers, we don't leave time for play, but play is how children learn to self-regulate. So there needs to be time for that in their day, even as they're older. And by play, I don't necessarily mean, you know, the park, but like mindless, not mindless, but like just open time of ex exploration and joy, whether it's through music or dance or, you know, get out the Lego. Um, there's all kinds of ways to to allow them to do that. And that's how they do um, develop emotional regulation. It's easy to slip out of that habit of guarding that time, setting that time in place. Like this is a a mainstay of our day, just like our school subjects are, just like mealtimes are, whatever. It's almost the first thing to go in some ways when so we true. get kind of distracted and or get busy or something unexpected happens. And I think it, I can see a difference with that when, when that is missing. Mm -hmm. People are sharing with each other. Yeah. You know, homeschooling parents tend to be, in my experience, because I've done a fair number of consultations with kids that have gone off to college or into the military or into the workforce after after homeschooling, and um, parents tend to be about a year to two years behind the oldest kid's developmental trajectory. That's because they've got so many other kids a lot of times, right? And they're familiar with like working with age brackets. The oldest one is always breaking new ground, right? My oldest, Grace, talks about, we talk about it, we talk about it. She was the practice child, right? You know, like she <laughs> yeah. broke us in as parents, right? Um, and it's not only the oldest child, but it's the oldest child of each sex, right? So you might have three girls and then a boy, you know, that's often a real difficult learning experience too, because it's different. There are, you know, there are these, you know, clearly identifiable sex differences. So, so, uh, parents often have to got to spend a little extra time on that oldest one, which can be hard, right? Especially if you're hoping the oldest one's going to help you out with the management of the household and all the other things that are going on. Seven kids we had, we totally got, you know, got drawn into that at various points, right? So, um, so that's another thing to just really consider that oldest one, the oldest one of both uh, sexes. Um, that's really, really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we've 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 had the algebra battles with Grace too. I mean, a lot of the things that you were talking about, uh, you know, we, yeah, <laughs> you know, <I'm> here. <laughs> you, know here. It's, you know, it's, you know, my wife was really good at realizing, hey, you know, she can get to she can get to heaven without having completed algebra two, um, you know, so <laughs> it's not a requirement. You know. Yeah, I'm just still chuckling at the idea of the oldest child being the practice child. Because there are only the two of us, Bonnie and me. So, finds a lot. Yep. <laughs> now, me as the mom of kids who are adolescents, so I have two boys and then two girls. But yes, I can see quite clearly what you mean about the differences between them, how my interactions with my girls are distinct from my interactions with my boys. Even, you know, it's not, it's just how we are made, I think. There's a lot of impact of biology, of endocrinology. Testosterone makes a lot of difference in, in, you know, the ways that we relate. We're embodied beings, right? We're bodies and souls. And those bodies have a huge impact. So it's a very different thing uh, for, for sons and daughters. Sure, including birth order and personality, right? You see right from the womb their little personalities. So... As much as when we have a large group of children, we want to batch raise them, we can't because <laughs> <laughs> they're individuals, right? And that bites us all the time when we try to just, for convenience sake, we'd like everyone to just cooperate in this one way. <laughs> it doesn't work. One of the great things that we discovered that was just a, a lifesaver for us is we had this concept of snippets. And snippets were a period of time of five to 10 minutes each day when each child got to spend that with just mom or dad, right? And so each child each day got between five and 10 minutes with dad and then with mom. And um, and what we found is that if kids could rely on those snippets, like there was so, we, we got that time back in spades, you know, in terms of like just knowing that there was a time like, you know, that was one of the first words that our kids learned, like, nip it, my nip it, 
was oh, like one of those oh. things, right? Like oh. if a child started to approach during snippet time, there would be this guarding of it, <laughs> and uh, it was just it was just great. And um, and as they get older, right, they they use that that time for different things. And now my older ones, you know, batch that. Sometimes they just want to spend an hour on a weekend together, and you know, so we don't necessarily hit every. But for the little ones, for them to know that if they want to talk about, you know, what happened, they've got that time with dad, you know, when, you know, after he comes home, it's really, really precious. So um, I thought I'd throw that in there just as as an experiment to try, right? You know, five minutes a day doesn't have to be something really huge. And then we let the kids pick some kind of activity that's appropriate for that time within reason. Right. That's great. And then they they know to expect it, too. That's different than. All of a sudden, right. or spontaneously, we have this pocket of time together, but they know it's coming. That makes that's, a big difference. That's yeah. a huge. That is a huge containing function. We would talk about that in psychology as having a containing function because we know that there's going to be a forum in which we can raise this question or we can address this concern or, you know, I can explain to mom finally why my brother is such a pest, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know, <laughs> and the idea is that we really want to be focused on that particular child in that moment. So. That's big. Yeah. I really appreciate all this that you have given to us and the time you've taken with us. It's been a pleasure to be here with you, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Hope. And of course, I'm very fond of Jody. So, you know, to be able to spend a little time with you doing this, Jody actually helps with uh, the, the human formation stuff we do for Catholic therapists in the interior therapist community at Souls and Hearts. So huge role there. So she's also a big part of our, you know, of our team uh, at Souls and Hearts as well. So. And if folks if folks want like to learn about human formation in the month of June, we're taking in members to the resilient Catholics community. And we've got a whole program of human formation there. There's all kinds of information about that at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. So if people are interested in like a, a really coordinated program to help with that human formation, we've we we actually think we've got the first one that we can offer to lay Catholics. So so that's another possibility for folks that we're really excited about. Wonderful. So, yeah. Tremendous help to families. This has been so enriching and enlightening. I know for both Bonnie and me, and I'm sure all of our listeners, thank you, Dr. Peter. Thank you, Jody. Your experience and your insight as mental health professionals, faithful Catholics, and homeschooling parents is just, it's a treasure. And we are very grateful for the time that you've spent with us. As I mentioned before, the show notes today will have lots of links to Souls and Hearts and various resources that we think that will be helpful to families. We'll have Jody's tips in there. And yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with yes. you both. Thank you. What a great service you're giving to your families. It's great. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.